Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's just turned four o'clock and it is time for Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. And I, as usual, will be here until six o'clock tonight. Today, two major UN conferences in New York in June. And if you've been relying on the corporate media, you wouldn't have a clue about either of them. But here at 3CR you do, because we have Nick McClellan, journalist and researcher. The latest threat to human rights in Sri Lanka, right-wing Buddhist thugs attacking the minority Muslims in the south of Sri Lanka, speaking with Dr. Brian Singaratna, 60-plus years human rights activist from Sri Lanka. Update on the campaign to make Faulkner toxic-free. Looks as though everyone's running for cover. Someone's got to take responsibility. I'm speaking to Sue Bolton from Socialist Alliance, and she's also a member of the council at Moreland And Trump, the Middle East, Europe, all those sorts of things with Professor Emeritus James Petrus speaking from his home in New York. But first, let's hear it from Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane, listener, when former big supremo Tiny a bit more for the bosses accused train-killer merchandise minister Christopher Payne in the of disloyalty. And I'm not sure we need even to comment on that. What can satire add? Sounds like same-sex divorce. While three other ministers apologised to the Supreme Court bench here in Victoria for accusing it of being a front for some world communist conspiracy, a hotbed of leftist ideology, and I, I hope no one suggests after their defiance a few days earlier, their apology was based more on avoiding being charged with an offence ruling them ineligible to keep their thumbs on the plush seats than genuine contrition, grovelingly appealing they had made uninformed comments, but if that were the case, they'd spent half their lives apologising. Their revelations of the commie conspiracy within the daunting Supreme Court buildings showed how devious these conspirators are, as our false impression of the bench was based on subjective observations like what they said and what they did and who they were. In the earlier hearing before rethinking their futures, dragged before a kangaroo court of these judicial Marxists, the responsible MPs argued they were simply exercising their right to free speech. And anyway, how could one commit contempt by using that free speech to point out how, how contemptible the Supreme Court bench is? And the government to a person argued that a contempt charge would be an attack on that critical right to free speech. Then, a few days later, as evil union boss John Setka criticised the Smash the Union's jackboots commission and its non-ideological thought police just doing their job, the very same government defenders of free speech called for Setka 
to be charged with contempt. Nothing like a bit of consistency. But no, no, no inconsistency, because that call for a contempt charge and that great believer in the law, former Free Kills the Workers' Partner and now Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, Michaelia Kosh the Workers, promptly and promptly referred the Setka contempt, and let's not even waste time saying it's alleged, to the, the sorry, the police. The very police, Setka also alleged, were puppets of the government, so he's guaranteed a fair hearing. No inconsistency, because another responsible, caring business class MP, Western True Blue Aussie Senator Dean Smite, the workers, wrote a so-called think piece calling for greater controls over evil unions, because as the law stands, he wrote, evil unions have too many privileges, which certainly makes the mind boggle. The leader of the Jackboots pack, Nigel Hodge, kissed the bosses, told us Jackboots inspectors and he had been intimidated and threatened by evil workers. These threatened people are just going about their lawful business of smashing the evil unions. The Jackboots Con mission is totally opposed to any form of intimidation and threat. On that matter and on consistency, righteous anger at injustice, at cruelty, at the blatant disregard for human rights, from US of the UN of the US of the World Secretary for World State Rex Killamson over the young man sent back from North Korea in a coma who died this week. He attacked the brilliant, great and beloved third generation of the brilliant, great and beloved first family, the only great and beloved family brilliant enough to run the place. They jail them, brutalise them and send them home to die. He was aghast at such inhumanity. The audience knew immediately he was not talking about Guantanamo, for there is a big difference. The new SOB stops at sending them home to die. It just jails them, brutalises them and doesn't send them home to die. Keeps them locked up for the term of, and there's another big difference. The USOB denies human rights in defence of liberty, freedom and democracy in defence of the law. And don't say the USOB doesn't give them justice. Why? It's charged one terrorist, and let's not waste time on the alleged bit again, with being a terrorist after only a dozen or so years of jailing and brutalising him. So it can damn the North Korean brilliant, great and beloved leader from experience, from practised knowledge. We commented last week on Deputy Big Supremo and Hayseed and Sheepshit Party Supremo Barnacle seeing a critical role for the public sector in the world of the wise exponents of the greatest little economic order of them all. The government should invest in new coal-fired power stations. We even commented on the state of poor Barnacle's mind. Well, a couple of days later, Malcolm followed suit. Oh, but they're talking clean coal, of course. Well, a bit cleaner than dirty coal, which is the oxymoronic clean coal, emphasis on the last three syllables. Wonder why these ardent believers in the private sector aren't leaving the investment to the private sector. Surely not because the private sector can see the writing on the polluted wall. Although it did order the government to leave the energy crisis to the market. We got you into it and we created the energy crisis and we'll get you out of it, they promised.
Bet you picked what was wrong with that, listener. Because the private sector knows that any economic crisis is 100% down to the public sector and only it, the private sector, can get us out of a mess. On Great Minds, as that appalling hoonson of the misnomed One Notion, the real title clearly should be No Notion, as appalling bast in the glory of her doctorate in stupidity, it struck me, imagine one of those telly so-called entertainment quiz shows featuring that appalling and barnacle. They'd despair of ever winding up the program as they attempt to break the nil-all deadlock Anyway, Appalling maintained her academic research in this area declaring autistic kids and kids with disabilities should not be allowed anywhere near a classroom, must be confined to institutions for the insane, because Appalling knows physical disability correlates to utter stupidity, which is why we have to yell at anyone with any sort of disability, confine them to the Stephen Hawking Institute for Kids with Disabilities, for instance, but then she now says she was taken out of context. Autistic kids and kids with disabilities should not be allowed anywhere near a classroom does not mean autistic kids and kids with disabilities should not be allowed anywhere near a classroom. And there was this Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin headline, Hoonson's Discipline Call. And I thought, maybe she'd change jobs, that appalling Lash son, Madame L. But no, no, she wants the Lash restored in all classrooms. Discipline is essential. But then maybe she just bears a grudge against education because appalling is a prime example of how our education system can totally fail some people as out-of-control socialist governments can totally fail the experts who know all about the greatest little economic order. All exposed Friday, the Capitalist Review P1, Act of Economic Vandalism, backed up by editorial South Trublawazi's Great Bank Robbery. Nothing less than the debauchery of the political system it preached. Bloody socialist government, South Trublawazi budget Thursday imposed a small levy on the banks to compensate for the bank's financial transactions being exempt from the GST. The poor banks, economically vandalised, our, our hearts bleed. The federal government, which knows all about these things, announced the South Trublawazi levy was more than likely illegal, and the banks should challenge it in court, for which they don't need any encouragement. Well, they've already challenged it in the court of public opinion running very, very expensive ads explaining how the levy will destroy the South Trublawazi economy and the banks and South Trublawazi can't afford this attack on jobs and growth and productivity, a form of economic terrorism. Uh, how come you can raise a levy but they can't? We asked big economic guru Scuttle them more less son. Because uh, ours is legal. The poor banks looked very concerned. Someone has to pay for it. They were close to tears. Uh, but the government said, you should pay. Let me make that clearer. Uh, someone else has to pay for it. Although sometimes headlines can be misleading. Take Adani the Reef coal mine clears native title hurdle. Oh, the indigenous groups who approved it, we assume. Well, no, no. Attorney General George Brandy's brain has changed the Native Title Act to remove those Indigenous people's rights to stop the mine, stop all those jobs and investment. 
Well, investment with our money, and let's ignore that report telling us the reef and associated jobs and tourism are worth billions more than a Adani the reef could ever generate. Why, think of the millions of international tourists who'll flock to the wilds of Queensland to dive into the whopping great coal dust extraction and marvel at its beauty. Finally, to add to the excitement, they can then follow the tourist trail all the way along the private Adani the Reef publicly funded rail line all the way back to the coast where Adani the Reef tourist guides can show them where the reef used to be. Good afternoon. The mind boggles, doesn't it? That's Mr Kevin Healy and he's had a, another week. I think he's had about 32 years of weeks now on 3CR. But he'll be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock and then he'll be back tomorrow at 9 o'clock for his program City Limits. Where You Meant to Be, a film benefit for 3CR Radiothon, put on by the Sewer Show crew. Singer Aidan Moffat and friends travel Scotland, drinking in the roots of all folk tunes, featuring older balladeer Sheila Stewart. Showing upstairs at 3CR at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, on Friday the 30th of June at 7pm sharp. Popcorn supplied. $10, $5 concession. All welcome. <laughs> Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say, it's okay, you are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419-8377. Today I'm joined by journalist and researcher Nick McClellan and we'll be talking about two conferences in New York this week. The first, the 2017 UN Oceans Conference, which took place between the 5th and the 9th of June, coinciding with World Ocean Day on the 8th of June and World Environment Day on the 5th of June. And the second, the Global Conference on Banning Nuclear Weapons. This was a major global conference bringing together not only governments but hundreds, thousands of representatives from a range of non-government organisations, indigenous groups, uh, community organisations and so on. You know, the oceans make up three quarters of the surface of the planet. They're a vital resource for our environment, for our livelihoods, for our economy. And the communique that came out of the conference... Our Ocean, Our Futures sums it up well by saying our ocean is critical to our shared future and common humanity in all its diversity. The notion of the oceans as the commons is a really important one because today around the world we're seeing the battle between the privatisation of everything from physical goods to intellectual property to the atmosphere, the very atmosphere itself. I saw the other day a report issued where people from PricewaterhouseCoopers tried to put a dollar value on the Great Barrier Reef, which you'll be pleased to know is worth $56 billion. 
this notion that everything has to be valued through the dollar is dominant in mainstream politics. And yet the Oceans Conference came back to notions that the ocean is a shared resource, is the commons, part of common humanity, and therefore needs to be protected in the interests of humanity. Philosophically, as well as practically, it's a really interesting challenge at a time when there are significant pressures on the world's oceans, including the Pacific Ocean especially. And what are those pressures? Well, three core themes came out in the call to action issued at the end of the Oceans Conference. One was on ocean acidification and the uh, physical dangers to the ocean, to marine life and to reefs. The second was around plastics, surprisingly, but uh, when you think about how much plastic goes into the ocean, that was uh, seen as a a significant uh, environmental and economic impact. And thirdly was about overfishing, the massive exploitation of an overfishing of key resource stocks, the spread of illegal, unreported and unregulated fishing, which is uh, plundering the high seas, and also the exclusive economic zones, the 200-mile zones around uh, uh, national territory, which are supposed to be managed by each country, but are increasingly under pressure from uh, deep-water fishing nations. So by overfished, you mean it's critical? For some species, yes. Some species have been wiped out effectively as an economic resource. You know, in the North Sea, uh, for many years, uh, cod was a central resource for countries like England, Scotland, Norway. The cod fishing is finished in the North Sea. And what we've seen over time is that major Northern Hemisphere fishing fleets, particularly from Europe but also from Asia, have been plundering oceans like the Atlantic and the Indian Ocean. And in some ways, the Pacific Ocean, which is the largest ocean, is under pressure now from foreign fishing fleets. Historically, American and Asian fleets from China, Taiwan, Japan, Malaysia to a certain extent, have been operating in the Pacific. Now we see the European Union, particularly Spain and other countries, starting to expand their operations into the Pacific, having stuffed up marine resources in the Indian Ocean, in the Atlantic Ocean, wiping out some uh, resources that's uh, now putting pressure. And the big resource in the Pacific is tuna. Western and Central Pacific has about 70% of the world's tuna. So next time you go to a Japanese restaurant to eat sushi, think Pacific. Key types, different species of tuna are under enormous pressure. Skipjack uh, tuna, the better quality tuna particularly, the stocks are, are being overfished and there are all sorts of efforts to look at conservation regulation of that uh, fishing fleet. But then again, it's an economic resource rather than an environmental resource. Well, these things are interconnected. and the, You only have to look at the Barrier Reef. You know, the Barrier Reef is not just a, an amazing environmental marvel. What an astounding piece of life ecology. And in its own right, that's valuable. But many people live off the reef in North Queensland, uh, you know, through tourism, through fishing and so on. Uh, it's, it has an economic role, as we were discussing before. The obvious impact of global warming with the bleaching of corals, which is something that happens, you know, throughout the centuries, but is happening more regularly and with more intensity now. So we're seeing, particularly in the northern part of the reef, corals being killed off by repeated bleaching incidents simply because of the warming of the oceans and the acidification of the oceans, which is damaging reef uh, ecologies and also crustaceans, which are a vital part of the reef ecology. What causes the acidity? CO2 being absorbed into the ocean. The oceans are a massive sink 
for CO2 from the atmosphere. And uh, there's a lot of scientific research now suggesting that there's growing rates of acidification, and that's having impacts, for example, that uh, the shells of crustaceans and shellfish and limpets and so on are becoming more brittle and breaking and therefore more open to predators. Uh, So it has an enormous impact. And, you know, the Malcolm Roberts of the world, you know, the One Nation uh, climate sceptics, the mining industry and others, uh, the people pushing new coal plants will tell you, oh, it's got nothing to do with, with climate change. But there's a whole body of scientific research showing that ocean acidification is a sort of slow burn issue. You know, people always talk about sea level rise as the greatest threat to uh, the Pacific Islands. But the damage to the reef has enormous economic and social and cultural impacts for peoples that have long lived off the reef ecology. Uh, Women going out at low tide collecting limpets off the thing is a vital source of nutrition in the Pacific. And that damage to, uh, to those shellfish, to those limpets, crustaceans and so on, is an enormous impact for people's health and livelihoods. The third one you mentioned was plastics, and it's getting a lot of attention lately. Yeah, the the enormous amount of waste from plastic bags to ring top, you know, things off beer cans to all sorts of uh, plastic that's thrown away goes through the storm drains into the ocean is collecting. And one of the phenomena that's come is these areas in the central Pacific up towards Hawaii in the northern Pacific where ocean confluence swirls basically the plastics together. And so you have areas, you know, there's one area as large as Texas in the centre of the Pacific which has, through ocean currents, brought together huge amounts of plastic. And over time, many of these plastics start to break up. They don't completely disappear, but they break up into what are called microplastics And these are tiny, tiny bits of PCBs and plastics and so on which get into the fish and other marine uh, organisms and, uh, you know, have long-term impacts on marine health and ultimately, if they're caught, our health. Um, Seabirds, you know, get entangled in fishing nets and rubbish and plastic bags and so on and die. Just go on the web and Google it. You know, you can see the most amazing photos of the contents of seabirds' stomachs with incredible amounts of plastic in them. And that has long-term implications for the health of the oceans. The oceans are also stressed by other sorts of pollution, including uh, algal blooms that come particularly from the runoff from agriculture, you know, the intensive agriculture now. uh, Corporate agriculture uses incredible amounts of uh, nitrogen and uh, other fertilisers. That has enormous implications for algal blooms, which, uh, if they grow too large, can kill marine life through, you know, lack of oxygen and other problems. These are beyond just small-scale spillage. And one of the things we saw at the New York conference was an enormous discussion around marine pollution and a call that there needs to be changes to international law to address the high seas. One of the things that the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea did during the uh, early 1980s was create uh, exclusive economic zones around each country, around each island and reef and so on, to allow for the conservation and management of ocean resources. And so countries already have for the 200-mile zone and indeed extending out to the edge of the continental shelf, for Australia's sake, up to 340 kilometres, rights to manage and conserve uh, the environment. 
Um, there's a lot of discussion coming out of the Oceans Conference. How do you manage that on the high seas, which are the common heritage of humanity rather than individual privatised uh, ownership? But often the high seas are areas where people dump all sorts of crap and corruption that has implications for other areas. What about nuclear waste? Well, that's one of the biggest challenges. You know, going back 30 years, Pacific Island governments were at the forefront of opposition to the dumping of nuclear materials in the ocean and the transport of hazardous nuclear materials across the ocean. You know, Japan... Uh, going back to the 1980s, had plans to dump high-level drums of waste into the Marianas Trench, which is a deep ocean trench. Astounding that, that you know, the idea that you'd put low-level waste and other things, seal it in concrete, put it in a 44-gallon drum, and then just dump these drums in the middle of the ocean. And we've seen, after nuclear testing, the disposal of low-level and medium-level waste into the ocean. France, after they ended their nuclear testing at Mururo Atoll, did a very rough and ready clean-up, certainly not a comprehensive clean-up, and put hundreds of tonnes of contaminated material into two sites off Mururo. They just went out offshore, outside the territorial waters, and dumped it in the ocean. And those two sites have got enormous potential. Now, you know, you put stuff in 44-gallon drums. I don't know, I grew up on a farm and they rust pretty quickly. Um, you know, these sort of things aren't going to last for a very long time and you only have to look at the footpaths to know that concrete doesn't last very long. Same problem in the Marshall Islands. After the 67 nuclear tests that the Americans conducted at Bikini and Eniwetok atolls in the Marshall Islands, um, many of the, the worst parts of the contamination on Eniwetok were bulldozed together and then capped with a concrete dome on an island called Runit, it's one of the islands of the, the atoll that, that is Eniwetok. I mean, they vaporised three islands from Eniwetok Atoll during the testing. Other atolls were contaminated with plutonium, with cesium, with other high-level radioactive waste that lasts for thousands of years, in the case of plutonium, 24,400 years, half-life. And so they just shoveled it all together and covered it in concrete. And that was done in the late 1970s. Now here we are, 40 years later, and the concrete's all cracking. And the Marshall Islands government came to the Oceans Conference in New York calling for action by the responsible power, i.e. the United States, to address the problem. It's also affected by sea level rise, where the changing water table on Runet Island means that it looks like some stuff is leaching out from underneath the concrete cap. So as well as concrete cracking, surprise, surprise, there's stuff leaching through the marine environment from this basic radioactive waste dump. We all know, too, Fukushima is still leaking high-level radiation into the Pacific Ocean and that the Japanese government and uh, civil authorities are unable to stop ongoing pollution from the uh, Daiichi-Fukushima nuclear power plant that's uh, still leaching all sorts of shit into the, into the Pacific. And what was the US reaction to being... Challenged on the dump? Well, these diplomatic conferences, you know, the people pledge all sorts of things. The real challenge is what happens afterwards. The communiques are all very well and good. And, uh, you know, the major powers, well, can I say it's not high on Donald Trump's agenda to address these sorts of questions. But this conference was really interesting in that it saw a high level of voluntary commitment 
by hundreds, over 1,300 separate initiatives were registered. The call to action, Our Ocean, Our Future, uh, that was issued by the conference, called on governments, on regional organisations, on the United Nations agencies, on NGOs, on marine organisations, on environmental organisations, Indigenous peoples and others, to say what they were going to do. They were thinking they'd get some high-level pledges from the big green multinationals like the Pew Foundation, uh, IUCN, the International Union for Conservation and Nature, those sort of big green organisations were obviously very focused on this issue. But they were surprised that there were over 1,300 voluntary pledges by organisations and institutions taking action. Now, in some ways, it's a bit of a hodgepodge, uh, um, but it, it's, it's a sign that there is a, a, a global awareness about the hazards to the ocean and a global awareness that time is short and there's a need for action. And you see the same thing happening with nuclear weapons. Well, you don't see it in Australia because our newspapers don't cover this. There was no coverage in the Australian media of any substance of the Oceans Conference, despite the fact that, you know, the vast majority of governments were represented in New York. Similarly, as we speak, there are negotiations underway in New York to develop a nuclear weapons ban treaty. Just before you go on to that, Nick, can you just talk a bit more about the contribution of the Pacific Island nations and civil society there to the conference? The Pacific Island governments and community groups played a central role in driving the Oceans Conference. This all came from the experience of small island developing states, particularly in the Pacific, also some in the Caribbean, from the first round of what were called the Millennium Development Goals. In 2000, through the UN processes, the international agencies set goals to address poverty and those lasted from 2000 to 2015, the Millennium Development Goals. There were major advances on empowerment of women, on education and so on, but still a long way to go. And one of the things that came out from the Pacific experience was that the Millennium Development Goals were often targeted at larger nations in Africa and Asia that had different types of poverty to that in the Pacific. You know, Pacific Islanders, still many grow their own food, go fishing and so on. But the Millennium Development Goals didn't really capture the importance of the oceans for the what they call the liquid continent, the vast area of the South Pacific, the Central Pacific. And so when the MDGs, the Millennium Development Goals, were revised to new what are called sustainable development goals, Pacific governments were at the forefront of arguing there should be a specific goal on the oceans. There should be a specific goal about the management, the preservation, the conservation of the oceans, the seas and marine resources. And they were successful. It took a lot of lobbying, a lot of campaigning. Um, you know, landlocked countries like Switzerland said, why don't we need to talk about the, you know, the oceans? But um, one of the things is there are a lot of small island states in the Caribbean, in the Mediterranean, in the Pacific, in the Indian Ocean, and they banded together, driven particularly by the Pacific, and took that role. And in the region... Fiji particularly was active. Uh, Fiji is currently president of the UN General Assembly. First time a Pacific Island country has ever done that. And uh, um, the Pacific Islands Forum, which is the main regional organisation, in 2014 took up this issue, established a Pacific Oceans Alliance and uh, has a small office based at the Forum Secretariat headquarters in Suva to campaign around oceans issues. So this is something that's been bubbling away for quite a while, 
but there was a big push and a successful push. So SDG 14, Sustainable Development Goal 14, is about the oceans and the seas. Now, this conference uh, in the first week of June is the first of three conferences over the next 15 years, co-hosted this one by Fiji and Sweden, to put some meat on the bones of the sort of statements, the aspirations. You know, it's not just enough to say we need to protect the oceans. You need policies, you need actions, you need challenges to corporate power to protect the commons and to stop uh, the exploitation of deep-sea minerals, for example, to stop the pollution, to stop the spread of nuclear waste being dumped into the ocean and so on. You're listening to Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. My name is Jan Bartlett and I'm speaking with journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. Moving on to the conference in New York regarding ban on nuclear weapons. It's a busy month. Just as the uh, Oceans Conference was finishing, uh, negotiators from more than 100 countries were gathering again in New York to finalise the text of a treaty to ban nuclear weapons, a treaty to move towards the eventual elimination of nuclear weapons. This is a major breakthrough, and it's happening in spite of the opposition of the nine nuclear weapon states and also the opposition, more importantly, of countries that are allied to the nuclear weapon states that rely on extended nuclear deterrence. And forefront of those in our region, of course, is Australia. And Japan. And Japan. Um, Australia particularly has played a, 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 a dangerous role. In fact, at recent Senate estimates hearings, um, Australian diplomats were under questioning from Senator Scott Ludlam, admitted that they were regarded as, and I quote, weasels, unquote. Didn't like that, did they? Weasels by other diplomats for the role they'd played. You know, that's DFAT, acknowledging that other countries look at Australia not just as stepping aside from this process, but of actively trying to sabotage actions and acting like weasels. That's the Turnbull government and, indeed, other governments acting like this. But Australian voices have been carried into the negotiations, which are still underway. They continue until July the 7th. Karina Lester, young Aboriginal woman, a Nungu woman from South Australia, carried the voice of Indigenous Australians into these negotiations. Um, Civil society plays a really active role, Um, through the International Committee for the Red Cross, through networks like ICANN, the International Coalition to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, but also Indigenous voices, because Indigenous peoples in the Pacific, as we've talked about many times, but also in uh, Central Asia, uh, in Algeria, in other places, Indigenous peoples have borne the brunt of nuclear testing, nuclear dumping, uh, nuclear weapons development. And so uh, Karina is the daughter of Yami Lester, uh, a famous, um, iconic figure in this struggle. In 1953, the British tested an atomic weapon, codenamed Totem One, uh, in the desert of South Australia. A black mist and a rain cloud uh, went across the community of Wallatina, some miles away from the test zone, but certainly uh, uh, close enough for radioactive fallout um, to spread across the community. And Yami Lester described at the time the grittiness, the dust, the pollution that came into his eyes, and he was later blinded from that experience. And Yami Lester was one of the leading figures to campaign for the Royal Commission, McClellan Royal Commission, in 1985 that uh, brought to light a lot of what the British had done during the atomic testing. 
Now, generation on, his daughter, Karina, has carried the message of Indigenous peoples to the United Nations, to this global conference, saying that not only should there be action to eliminate nuclear weapons, but that nuclear powers and host governments like Australia have a responsibility to address the health and environmental impacts of past nuclear activities, particularly of nuclear testing. Karina presented to the conference an Indigenous statement that was endorsed by particularly groups from French Polynesia, from uh, Kiribati, from uh, Aotearoa New Zealand, from Fiji, from uh, Marshall Islands, uh, countries that have all had personnel or territory involved in nuclear testing in the Pacific. And uh, that had quite an impact. Indeed, uh, the chair of the conference, uh, just uh, on the 20th of June, issued a revised preamble. Um, A draft was presented earlier this year. Now they've done a revised version of the preamble and it incorporates a major statement about the need for action to recognise the impact on Hibakusha, the people who in Japan who are affected by uh, the atomic bombings at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but also people around the world, particularly in the Pacific, uh, who'd been affected by nuclear testing and the development of nuclear weapons. It's a significant breakthrough in trying to address that. And in the text of the actual treaty, the action plan of the treaty, There's a whole section on assistance, but there's debates underway about who's responsible. So for the British testing in Australia, is the United Kingdom responsible or is Australia responsible? I'd personally argue that both are responsible, that Australia, um, having let, under Robert Menzies, uh, the then Prime Minister, let Britain test nuclear weapons in Australia without Cabinet approval, let alone parliamentary approval, um, Australia, successive Australian governments have a responsibility to address the health and environmental consequences of what happened in the deserts of South Australia, in the Montebello Islands, off the coast of West Australia. Similarly, obviously, Britain, who conducted the nuclear tests, have an enormous responsibility. But that debate's being played out between some countries that argue that the primary responsibility is for the people who are letting off the bomb, but others are saying, well, but the host country that allowed that to happen has to have some say. What about the countries that had no say whatsoever? Exactly. For the Pacific, one of the problems is that uh, the nuclear testing was carried out in colonies. So French Polynesia is indeed still an overseas dependency of France. Marshall Islands, between 1946 and, uh, and fifty eight, when the tests were happening, was part of the trust territory of the Pacific Islands, uh, an American trusteeship. The British Gilbert and Ellis Islands colony, uh, where the British tested hydrogen bombs on Christmas and Malden Island, um, was a British colony. So many Indigenous people have suffered through colonialism and one of the strongest pressures has been to recognise that link and to get the nuclear powers to take responsibility for actions that they took in their colonies. And also the the men from Fiji? Yeah, well, Fiji was a British colony and uh, over 270 Fijians uh, were deployed for Operation Grapple, which is the British uh, nuclear testing program in Kiribati what was then the British Gilbert and Ellis Islands colony. There were New Zealand sailors, Fijian sailors sailors and soldiers, as well as the Gilbertese uh, plantation workers living on the island, who all had impacts from the British program. Nearly 14,000 British troops were deployed, so the New Zealand, Fijian, Gilbertese contingents were much smaller, only hundreds of people. But obviously uh, they 
have not received any benefits that have been given to British service personnel in, in the UK. And they're still campaigning for recognition, for compensation and indeed for clean-up. What's likely to happen in the final week? Well, the nuclear negotiations are proceeding pretty rapidly. As I said, uh, a draft revised preamble was reissued by the chair of the conference, who's Costa Rican diplomat, ambassador, showing that there's been progress uh, from the first round of negotiations in March to after you know ten days of nego- five days of negotiations in in uh, in the, this round, there's hope that a final draft treaty would be available by the end of the conference on July the seventh. Um, it looks like um, that some of the complex issues will be addressed by then, and there are complex issues. There's debates about whether the treaty should aim just not for the elimination of nuclear weapons but to ban, uh, for example, the threat of use. Not only to say you shouldn't use nuclear weapons, but you shouldn't threaten to use nuclear weapons. Similarly, there's questions about the transit of nuclear weapons through non-nuclear states. There's debates about what sort of language you have about assistance towards the development of nuclear weapons. So, for example, Australia supports US warfighting strategies, nuclear warfighting strategies, uh, through Pine Gap, and through other uh, communications control intelligence installations in Australia. Should that be banned by the treaty, as well as actually possessing a nuclear weapon? So there's a whole range of debates going on between the countries participating. As said, the nuclear powers are not there, but as we've seen with treaties to ban landmines, treaties to ban chemical weapons, uh, treaties to ban other sorts of weapons, the treaty will set a norm, will set a pathway towards the elimination of nuclear weapons, will provide opportunities to strengthen existing initiatives like the creation of nuclear weapons-free zones, could put some teeth into this, and will obviously put political pressure on the nuclear powers. And people say, oh, the nuclear powers will never do anything, they'll never react. That's just not correct. And I've written an article which people could read on Inside Story. Just Google Inside Story and my name, McClellan, the British have reacted to attempts by the Marshall Islands to take them before the International Court of Justice, um, the ICJ's, the highest court for international law in the world, and a number of countries have accepted jurisdiction by the ICJ, not everyone. On nuclear questions, India, Pakistan and Britain have accepted compulsory jurisdiction by the ICJ over matters relating to nuclear disarmament. And so the Marshall Islands in 2014 took all the nuclear powers to the ICJ saying that they weren't negotiating in good faith to eliminate nuclear weapons as they're obliged to under the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. There's no talks for disarmament going on in the UN Committee for Disarmament. There's no talks about talks. This is where you know the nuclear powers are in fact going in the opposite direction. And Britain was shocked when the case against them, together with India and Pakistan, proceeded to preliminary hearings because they were under ICJ jurisdiction and the marshals brought a case against them. So there were preliminary submissions, exchange of views and so on. By eight votes to eight, with a casting vote, uh, the court denied the Marshall Islands' case against Britain on procedural grounds, not on the substance. The Brits being very worried that a, a, a second case with better technical you know, input would come withdrew from compulsory jurisdiction in February this year. So having accepted that they would abide by international law and rulings of 
the International Court of Justice on Nuclear Disarmament Issues, Britain in February this year withdrew, knowing that the move towards a global treaty on the elimination of nuclear weapons will create new international law that will threaten them and the other nuclear powers. So Britain has withdrawn from ICJ. So the hypocrisy of the nuclear powers who demand that official enemies like Iran or North Korea um, abide by international law and disarm, uh, abandon their nuclear arsenals, at the same time, Britain has withdrawn from the compulsory jurisdiction of the ICJ because their nuclear arsenal has been challenged. And the hypocrisy of this is astounding. Um, no one wants nuclear weapons in North Korea, and many people in Northeast Asia are campaigning for a nuclear-free Korean peninsula. This is going to take some time, but it's amazing that it looks like by, uh, you know, within a month there will be a draft treaty before the international community heading towards the elimination of nuclear weapons. It's a, it's a, a historic moment, and it's the beginning of a process that's going to put more and more pressure on the nuclear powers and on allies like Australia that support systems of extended nuclear deterrence. You know, this is a real challenge for Australia because we're a signatory to the Rarotonga Treaty for a nuclear-free zone. We're the only, in fact, Western ally in a nuclear alliance like ANZUS that is also a signatory to a nuclear weapons-free zone. And we fought during the 1980s on behalf of the Americans to weaken the nuclear-free zone so the South Pacific Nuclear-Free Zone Treaty doesn't ban things like nuclear ship visits. But if there's increasing pressure to enhance these zones coming through this process, this banned treaty process, that puts Australia in an invidious position simply because we've boycotted these talks uh, in New York, but most of our neighbours are actively participating. Indonesia, Thailand, the Philippines are very involved in the, in the activities, ASEAN nations, Papua New Guinea, even our good mates, the New Zealanders, Nuclear Free New Zealand are campaigning and actively involved in the negotiations trying to work out how do you craft a treaty that is not just a verbal aspiration but it's got some teeth to it. And we're not part of the process. And most Australians don't realise this. Our media has failed signally to realise this is an enormous shift happening across the Asia-Pacific region and we're not part of it. It's a really significant time and I think people will look back at this period and wonder why was the media concentrating on Christopher Pine you know, joking in a in the cherry bar about his uh, his control. You know, Mister Fixit got control. You know, the 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 triviality of the political debate when the global conference on the oceans, global conference on nuclear issues are happening, and you wouldn't know it if you read the daily newspapers. I think Nick was making a very strong point there that three CR is covering both of those and will continue to do so, and hopefully in the next week or so. Dr. Margie Beavis will be returning from the UN and the BOM treaty negotiations in New York and we'll have a first-hand look at what's been going on about the push to ban nuclear weapons. So that's something to look forward to. I know she was looking forward to going even though she couldn't stay the whole time. I'm sure she's got the, f- the feeling of of what's been going on there. Now, if you've paid, that's great. Thank you very much for donating and paying your Radiothon. If you did donate and you haven't paid yet and you want to know what to do before the 30th of June, you might as well get it in and get a tax-deductible receipt. 
This is what you do. And if you haven't donated yet, you can always do it. And this is how. Are you wondering how to pay your donation? You can pay online by going to 3cr.org.au or call us on 94198377. You can also visit us in person at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy and pay by cash, cheque or FTPOS. Or simply post your cheque or money order to Post Office Box 1277 Collingwood 3066. And be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. 3CR, Radio for Change. The corporate media might be silent on the situation in Sri Lanka eight years after the end of the Civil War, but the struggle of the minority Tamils continues, as with other issues. Dr Brian Sinwaratna, a veteran of 60 years of support for Tamils' self-determination and land rights, is one of those outside Sri Lanka continuing to bring the focus to the world about the situation for Tamils in the north and northeast of Sri Lanka. But there is another issue as well. For months on this program and elsewhere, he has been warning of the alarming increase in attacks on Muslim mosques and businesses in Sri Lanka by hardline Buddhists, seen as the re-emergence of violent Buddhist nationalism. There's a reason for it, isn't there? The type or the the strain of Buddhism that is in Sri Lanka. Yeah. I'm actually a half Buddhist myself because my mother was a staunch Buddhist. I'm a Christian. And uh, therefore I know something about Buddhism, not a lot. And I do know that Buddhism, which of course evolved in India, went down two parts called the Theravada path and the Mahayana path. The Theravada path is the southern countries, which are basically Burma, Thailand, Sri Lanka. There are a couple of other countries, but these are the three main. And Sri Lanka is the main Theravada Buddhist place. The Mahayana Buddhists up in China and Japan, etc., they don't come into this game at all. The Theravada Buddhists have got basically a hatred for the Muslims. In Burma, Myanmar, it has reached a critical situation where the Muslims are so ill-treated that they have to take refuge in countries such as Australia. I think the situation in Myanmar, that's Burma, is almost hopeless. I was hoping that with the election of Aung San Suu Kyi, who is, of course, the icon of human rights, things will be reversed. But I got the shock of my life when I heard an interview that she gave. She doesn't give too many interviews. She just gave one interview, and I listened to it. And she says that the Rohingya, those are the Muslims from Burma, who are flooding into Australia, don't need to do so. They can return to Burma. It's perfectly safe for them. Now, she knows perfectly well that that is an absolute untruth. The same story was for Thailand, and now it is beginning to start in Sri Lanka. In Sri Lanka, there is an 
extremely extreme single Buddhist organization called the BBS, standing for Bodu, B-O-D-U, Bala, B-A-L-A, Sena, S-E-N-A, which means basically Buddhist power force or something like that. They are under a Buddhist monk who I can best describe as a thug. I mean, he, he really is a thug. He's not even clean-shaven. He started this organization about 2000 and I think uh, 12. And from that time onwards, the Muslims have had a very rough time, and it is increasing by the day. He has stormed the Muslim temples, got them dismantled, relocated, challenged uh, occupants, and even murdered some of them. Now he, he is a thug, and uh, he's gaining ground in the sense that he has uh, collected about 15,000, 20,000 thugs who accompany him. They are literally destroying all the uh, Muslim shrines. And I think that they are going down the same path as the other two, which is Myanmar and Thailand. And I think that you're going to get now not just Tamil refugees from the north and the east coming as asylum seekers to Australia. You're going to get Muslim asylum seekers from Sri Lanka because they are actually going to be persecuted as much, if not more, than the Tamils. Well, as you've said, this has been growing for a number of years. What has the government done about it? Well, it's quite interesting that the government has just, when I say just, I mean <laughs> just a few weeks ago, said that they're going to pass legislation to make hate speech illegal. The leader of the BBS has said you can make any law you want, we intend to break it. We will break the law and uh, you will have uh, to back down. And he, mind you, has been now uh, charged twice for abusing a magistrate and uh, for not appearing in court. And now there is an arrest for his warrant for the third time. I'm fairly sad. And the police say they can't find the man. I mean, there's nothing to find the man. He is all over the place. I don't think they want to find him either. Where does he get his funding from? What's his funding base? Oh, I forgot to tell you that he has a major political backer, and that is the previous president, Mahindra Rajapaksa's brother, who actually stands with them physically and is photographed. And I gather that uh, a lot of the money comes from Gotabe Rajapaksa. Gotabe Rajapaksa is one of the biggest crooks that Sri Lanka has had for a long time. I asked the same question. Where do the BBS fellows get their funds from? He said, well, your guess is as good as mine. I said, have a guess. I said, I would suspect it's one of the Rajapaksas. He said, yes, not the president, but the president's brother. And it's all on the net. If you go into Google and get into the images, uh, you will see Gotabe Rajapaksa with a whole background of Buddhist monks. They are the ones in the BBS. Who are those who are persecuting the Christians? They will take on anybody, but the BBS is targeting specially the Muslims. But they have actually, you're quite right, they have destroyed a Christian church only about a couple of weeks ago. 
and uh, a Christian priest had to be taken to hospital. Uh, or they will take on anybody who is a non-Buddhist and a non-single is non-Buddhist. But they are specifically targeting the Muslims. There are no other group in the whole of Sri Lanka that's targeting the Muslims, but he is. This guy is a thug. Since the end of the Civil War, you've been talking about the Buddhization of the Tamil areas in the north and the east. Are yeah. they the same group? No, no, no. This group is in Colombo. Okay. Well, who are those in the north and the northeast? In the north and the east are basically the armed forces. The armed forces are the ones who are creating problems there. But this much are in Colombo. I guess they will creep into uh, the north and the east to destroy Muslim places of worship. They're not interested in anything else. For sure, if someone says that there is religious conversion going on at some place, they will storm the, uh, the church. But their primary aim, as far as I can gather, is uh, the, the, Buddhist, uh, the, the Muslim places of worship. So a very unstable place, Sri Lanka. It is not just an unstable place. I think it is getting worse by the day. That is the, the dreadful thing, uh, that it is actually uh, deteriorating by the day. With people like the BBS being allowed to function, I mean, the BBS should have been banned uh, ages ago. The name of the gentleman is the Venerable Kalagoda Atte Nyanasara Tero. <laughs> I just call him the thug and, and leave it at that. <laughs> you see, the point is that it is up to us to tell the international community what is going on, not behind the closed and censored doors because it's no longer censored. But nobody is interested. They say the civil war is over, there's peace and quiet, smiling Tamil faces, and they don't know that there's a lot more than that. And the newest curse, and I, I call it a curse because I think it is a curse, is this uh, very violent BBS. You won't hear the end of that for a long time. You recently travelled to the United States, to Los Angeles, to attend a conference? Yes, it was the transnational government of Tamil parliamentary conference which I addressed. And I asked, what do we do? Where do we go from here? Because the Tamil people in the north and the east are fast becoming non-people. But there must be an answer. So they said, what do you think we should do? I said, well, you have to work in collaboration with the northern Tamils, particularly Justice Vigneswaran, who is the head of the Northern Provincial Council. He was a Supreme Court judge, and he is struggling to survive because the elected representatives of the Tamil people, uh, which is the Tamil National Alliance, the leader, uh, I mean, he is ancient. He is almost senile. But his spokesman is a fellow called Sumantaran, who has actually come to Australia. And he is almost part of the government. And he is trying to get rid of Ignacevolan once and for all. Uh, I said that one thing that we got to do is to stand by Justice Vigneswaran and say, we are behind you. That may or may not help, but uh, I listed out many things that could be done. One is a boycott, as we did in apartheid South Africa. 
isolate Sri Lanka and say, say no to Sri Lanka, no tourism, no goods in or out of Sri Lanka until the government of Sri Lanka offers reasonable terms in terms of devolution of power to the Tamil people. And that is not happening. What were the other speakers at that conference focusing on? You see, the problem with the Tamils. I mean, I've worked with them for so many years. They jabber in Tamil. Uh, they know damn well that uh, myself and the chief speaker, who was a fellow from Kosovo, we don't understand the language. So for two and a half days, we sat on our bottom, not knowing what the hell was going on, because we didn't understand a word. This chap from Kosovo, he spoke in English, of course. I spoke in English, and that was it. Uh, I told them next time, the next time you have a conference, you either have it in English or I don't come. We have a compromise. We'll have the conference for three days. For one and a half days, we focus on things outside the transnational government of Tamilism. We focus on Sri Lanka, London, Canada, etc. The other one and a half days, you can jabber in Tamil and uh, have constitutional amendments or God knows what. But for the first day and a half, we got it in, I mean, in English so that those of us who are not Tamils can pack our bags and leave. <laughs> so if you are asking me what happened for the rest of the time, the answer is I really don't know. But that guy from Kosovo, he was excellent. He was absolutely outstanding. He was actually one of the, he's a doctor and a surgeon, but he's one of the senior advisors for the Kosovo uh, government. He said, look, you got 1.5 million tam expatriate Tamils. If all of you, instead of fighting with each other, stick to each other, the Sri Lankan government will have to cave in. And just to listen to that guy, I think it was worth going to Los Angeles. Oh, I'm glad about that. That's Dr. Brian Sinmaratna, as I said working for over 60 years now for peace and justice in Sri Lanka. Three songs for 3CR, a fabulous fundraiser for Music Sans Frontieres, with songs from Scandinavia, Serbia, Georgia... Ireland and the Globe. 8pm Saturday the 1st of July, 1 Mark Street, North Fitzroy. Don't miss it. To book, www.boite.com.au The Boit, a 3CR supporter. The 7th Annual Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair is on Saturday, August the 12th from 10am to 6pm. The Book Fair showcases more than 40 stalls and a program of workshops. It's a great opportunity to be introduced to new ideas, to challenge your thinking and to meet with like-minded folk. It's free and we also provide free childcare. At the Brunswick Town Hall on Saturday, August the 12th from 10am till 6pm. Find out more at www.amelbournebookfair.org or find us on Facebook, the Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair. The Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair is a 3CR supporter. Bring down the bloody men down. Bring down the bloody men down.
Toxic Free Faulkner is a group in that suburb dedicated to force the clean-up of the toxic site in McBride Street, the former home of New Farm, which produced 24D and 245T, which mixed together form Agent Orange with the byproduct of dioxin, and there were even more dangerous chemicals manufactured there. There was a partial clean-up in the early 1990s, but now, 25 years on, developers are eyeing the site and others, and the people of the area are saying no, clean up this properly first, and a full and independent audit of the site. Residents have been meeting regularly, and on the 14th of June, representatives attended the Moreland City Council meeting. For an update on the campaign, I spoke with Sue Bolton, a member of Socialist Alliance, and a Moreland City Councillor supporting the residents within the council. Before we talk about that meeting on the 14th of June, Sue, the residents met with Greens Upper House MP Colin Hartland a week or so earlier. For those not familiar with her history, could you enlighten us? Well, Colleen, prior to being elected to Parliament, she was an activist in the western suburbs and particularly around toxic issues. In particular, she was involved in fighting around toxic sites but also around the hazards of the chemical industry in the western suburbs. And I'm not sure if she began that prior to the massive fire at Coot Island or in response to that. Long before that. Was it? And she was part of a group called HAZMAG, which was very active in the western suburbs around these issues for a long time. So she's had a lot of battles with the EPA. She knows the EPA often justifies bad practices. She's not just a politician. She's someone who has actually been a grassroots activist. What sort of advice did you get? Certainly we discovered, which some of us already knew but not everybody, that the EPA isn't necessarily always on your side in these matters. She's also prepared to raise some questions in Parliament to try and find out some information for us. And I think that will be quite important because we want to try and put pressure on the state government to deal with these legacy sites and people call these sites where um, really dangerous practices and poisonous practices were carried out many years ago where the company has left many decades ago or sold a site many decades ago where it's probably going to be very difficult to force the company that did the damage to pay to rehabilitate the site because it's so long ago since they left, we need the state government to deal with those issues. So we're going to start by raising a series of questions with the state government, Uh, but it was certainly really useful talking to Colleen because she understood exactly the issues we confront. She understood exactly that the site is toxic, even though the EPA seems to be instructing councillors that the site is not toxic. You've actually found that out, have you, that they've told them that? Yes, um, I was a briefing uh, of councillors by the EPA, a statement which is really based on or written by the EPA was read out at at a council, the last council meeting. The EPA is 
basically indicating that the site is likely to be safe, but there's a lot in what they leave unsaid. So I think they see and they sort of indicated that their job is really facilitating development unless there is major evidence of contamination. They say that they wouldn't force the owner of private land to do expensive testing unless there was extremely strong evidence. But of course, the question is, how are you going to get the evidence if you don't do the testing? The EPA has done some testing behind the site and down at the Merry Creek, but residents sort of dispute that. They say, well, really, what the EPA has tested is the runoff from above the clay cap. And it wasn't until I questioned them that they admitted that they have not tested the soil underneath the clay cap. And then they dazzled councillors by saying, we did such a thorough excavation of the site, we cleared away 80 tonnes of soil, we went down to bare rock so there's no way the site could still be contaminated. But residents have pointed out that actually 80 tonnes of soil isn't that much. They didn't say exactly where in the site they took the 80 tonnes of soil from. And the 80 tonnes would have been taken from two sites because two sites, both owned by different owners now, made up the original New Farm factory site. The EPA says the tests they took have come up negative and they've sent uh, tests for furans and dioxin. Dioxin is the most toxic element of Agent Orange. They've sent those away to Germany, but they sort of expressed confidence that they were likely to come back negative. But of course, where did they take the samples from? What dates? There's a lot of information that still needs to be gained. They say that there's no evidence that Agent Orange was produced on the site. What's the basis of them making that assertion? They asked New Farm which still exists and still produces Agent Orange in Laverton. They asked New Farm if they produced Agent Orange on the site. New Farm said they didn't know. EPA is assuring councillors that, or implying to councillors that Agent Orange was probably never produced on the site, despite the fact that the EPA knows, because it's in their reports, that the site was heavily polluted with dioxins, byproduct of Agent Orange, in the early 90s. I think there's some gilding of the lily here. And, yeah, they haven't tested underneath the clay cap. I think there's a lot of questions as to the safety of the site. And the other thing which they, they told the councillors is that no cancer cluster has ever been linked, if in Victoria, has ever been found to be linked to an environmental factor and that was to scotch the ideas that the findings of a cancer cluster in Faulkner could possibly be linked to this site. And, you know, there has been some casting of doubt on that in the council, but I think was thinking about that later. And actually the firefighters fight to have the Fiscal Firefighting Training Unit connected to the cancer cluster amongst firefighters was a long battle and that's an environmental factor. They found that cancer was caused by the foam that firefighters used in their training and now in the army that's being discovered at um, army bases around Australia is 
army firefighters have had cancer caused by the firefighting foam that they use. You know, the EPA is being quite cavalier and some elements of the council, I believe, are being quite cavalier about people's health and dismissing claims very, very quickly. I know through a couple of teachers who used to teach at Lakeside Secondary College across the creek from the old New Farm factory that a cancer cluster was discovered there amongst teachers and linked to New Farm. I'm trying to find out any information about any of these incidents. I gather it was some sort of official study, but we don't know by who because it's all so long ago and the authorities now are just casting doubt on any historical knowledge by the residents of that time. It is possible when residents discovered a cancer cluster, I mean, they did a door knock of the area of the closest streets to the um, to the plant and they discovered a cancer cluster. They kept good records. It was reported in the report on cancer clusters in, in Victoria. But I don't know if anyone was ever prepared to fund an epidemiological study. So just because that cancer cluster and the causes of it were not studied doesn't mean it's not linked. I mean, it doesn't necessarily prove it was linked, but it also doesn't prove that it wasn't linked. Just go back on a couple of things you've said there. The company denies that they made dioxins or agents orange, and they they don't know. They must have their figures for a company making dangerous chemicals. You would think so. Like, it just seems bizarre that the EPA would naively just accept a statement like that. They would have to have that information, you would assume. And it probably is in their archives. I imagine it would be archived because they left that site, the company left that site in 1974. But, you know, I think the EPA, like Victoria's planning system, sees its role as facilitating development and not being an unnecessary burden on business. So they really only act in the most extreme of cases. It seems to me, as I've delved into this issue, like a semi-self-regulated system. There's a certain amount of regulation, but there's not as much regulation as probably most Victorians believe. People probably think there's an EPA out there that's defending our health and safety. It might be to some extent, but not to a large extent. Well, just the name of the organisation, the Environmental Protection Authority, what is it supposed to mean if they're not going to look after the communities? Well, I would (laughs) interpret it as meaning, you know, protection. Now, there was an inquiry into the EPA last year which made a number of recommendations. I've had a quick look at it, but I haven't really studied it, so I don't know all of the details, although Harry Van Morst and the Western Region Environment Centre have gone into this in a great, det- a great lot of detail and are very familiar with the recommendations. Apparently the state government has agreed to take up most of the recommendations and I believe that forced the EPA to employ an environmental scientist, which they never had before. I believe one of the recommendations is something along the lines of 
the EPA seeing its role as protecting the health of the community or something like that. And the EPA is meant to have a stronger focus on that coming out of this inquiry. There is, I gather, some recommendation about some form of restorative justice for communities which have suffered as a result of these sort of terrible, toxic legacies. I haven't seen the exact wording of it, so I'm not sure exactly what it says. But certainly this community in Faulkner has suffered terribly as a result of this company. And really, they should actually have some form of compensation and at the very least recognition from the authorities. You said about they did a test of the site there. When was that done? Under whose guidance or instructions? Well, we really don't know. It was done, I believe, sometime in late April, but they didn't actually, never tested the site. And I think because of private property, the owner of the property has to give you permission to test on the site unless there's some sort of order by the EPA. And I gather that they only give those sort of orders in extreme cases. So they haven't actually tested the site. They've tested runoff from the site. So they tested behind the site and down near the Merry Creek, where I gather they tested groundwater runoff. But I don't think they really went down very far. They really haven't tested the site itself. We do know from when illegal building activity happened on the site in 2013 that when the workers pierced the clay cap, the, all the old stench and fumes came out from under the ground and the workers became dizzy and headachy. But So the site is still toxic underneath the clay cap. The EPA is sort of saying, well, it couldn't possibly be toxic because, you know, they took soil away down to the bare rock. But if that was the case, if it wasn't still toxic, these fumes wouldn't have come out of the earth when the illegal building work occurred on the site. Was this inquiry into the soil done before the residents started agitating? or, or... No, it was after. So the EPA told the councillors they weren't aware of the issue until they saw it in the paper, I assume the Moreland Leader, because there hasn't been the, ma- the major daily metropolitan papers. But that also can't be true because I know for a fact that at least one, maybe two residents and also myself contacted the EPA directly shortly after the application was advertised, application for development was advertised, and then also the council contacted the EPA after I moved a resolution at the Moreland Council meeting on April the 12th. So I don't believe they did find out just from the paper unless they're particular wings of the department that don't talk to each other. But I do know that one of the residents spoke to someone uh, in charge, I think, of the environmental auditing team. So you would think that that would have flowed through to the relevant sections of the organisation. There was another council meeting on the 14th of June and residents were present at that meeting. Were they able to voice their concerns? So residents voiced their concerns. There were was a a range of different residents who spoke, one who presented a petition and three separate residents, one who had lived on the street 
Oh, sorry, not on the street, but nearby since 1957, and she lost a son to cancer. And she's well aware of the cancer cluster. She's a former nurse, Roma, who spoke. There was a new resident who bought a house on the street early this year and was shocked when she heard about this um, site. And another resident whose mother led the campaign against the site. So they all spoke very well. They all asked a lot of questions, but really none of those questions were answered by the council. The council simply read out this statement from the EPA, but they didn't, or the mayor read out a statement from the EPA, but really didn't address the guts of the questions that came from the residents. So both the EPA and the council are ducking for cover, it would seem. Well, that's my interpretation, exactly. I feel that... There's a whitewash going on and there's a, an attempt to downplay the, the toxic history of the site and the experiences of the residents. And when you do street stalls in Faulkner on this issue, you always come across residents who grew up there as kids playing at the creek. A lot of the people who've died of cancer were kids, well, people who used to be kids who played in the creek when the where the toxic liquid was pumped, uh, waste liquid was pumped directly into the creek uh, and near the drain, open drain, which pumped uh, stuff into the, into the creek. So, you know, there's a lot of stories in Faulkner from people who grew up around that area. There were absolutely a lot of health issues. There was absolutely a cancer cluster in the area. If no one was prepared to do an epidemiological study, it doesn't prove that the cancer cluster and the toxic industry were not linked. It doesn't prove that they weren't linked. It just proves that no one was prepared to stump up the money to test residents' concerns. It'd be bad enough if this was an isolated case, but when you look around the suburbs, the inner suburbs of Melbourne and maybe some of the outer suburbs as well, there are many, many sites where chemicals, dangerous chemicals, were either manufactured or used on the site. Absolutely. There are a lot of sites which are really unusable now. And what we're thinking in this campaign, we set up a campaign group called Toxic Free Faulkner, and what we're thinking is if we can get something good on this site, a positive outcome of this site, such as a permanent clay capping of the two sites at the heart of the old factory and conversion of it to open space, never to be built on again, something along those lines, then, you know, that could be an example for other toxic sites because these sites exist all over Melbourne, especially in the western suburbs. The defence or military land that the federal government wants to build housing on in the Maribyrnong, Maidstone area, that site is totally contaminated and, you know, you certainly can't build as many houses as they think you can build on it because it's so toxic. A friend of mine who worked at Martin Bright Steel in the in Campbellfield, I think it is, said that there's a massive swimming pool of chrome underneath the old factory. So you could never use that for any kind of residential. But also I feel that with some of these sites where 
the EPA is saying they're suitable for light industrial but not for residential, I feel that that is or could be problematic as well because workers working on these sites for a certain number of hours a day, like exactly how safe is it? Workers' health being compromised by workers being allowed to work on these sites while people aren't allowed to live on them and sleep on top of them. I'm not so sure that these sites are safe for workers either. So, you know, I think there are a lot of issues and I know that developers are eyeing off these sites as a development boom. Also, my understanding is that the environmental audit industry is very small in Australia unlike the United States. So in the United States, there are a lot of environmental auditors who really just work with environmental groups and communities and so forth. Whereas in Australia, environmental auditors all need to do at least some work or all work for the development industry or mines or the big end of town. They can't be entirely independent on that basis. So you know, we've got a very inadequate system. The environmental auditors don't usually do their own testing. All they do is really look over the testing that's been done by the developers' environmental consultants and to see if they look authentic, but they're not independently tested and checked. I gather part of that is because it's so expensive to do environmental testing serious testing and so you know we've really got an industry which is really based on semi-self-regulation. And added to that are the many sites around Melbourne where there were service stations on those sites and it's been proved that over the years diesel and petrol has been leaking for perhaps decades from the tanks underground. That's right there's enormous number of sites like that it's very difficult for those sites to be used as anything anything other than another petrol station. And there is a case in Brunswick, Barclay Street. I wasn't on council when this all happened. This happened a long time before I was on council. But I think there was an old spotless laundry there. I'm not sure exactly what it was. I think it was spotless and incredibly polluted because of the sort of chemicals used in dry cleaning, they sold that site for an apartment block. The apartment block was built. Then the shit hit the fan when people discovered how contaminated it was and it was leading to contamination of the concrete. The developer was forced to tear down the apartment block with a massive extra effort of decontamination and then an apartment block was rebuilt in place of that apartment block I believe but it was a massive effort with everyone pointing the finger at each other the developer the council the EPA the company spotless pointing the finger at each other a bit similar to the Cranbourne tip case where the council had rejected the effort to build houses on the buffer zone, what was meant to be a buffer zone around the tip. The developer went to VCAT. The EPA had opposed the development in the buffer zone when the application was before council, but the EPA never submitted to VCAT. I think VCAT asked for the EPA to submit to VCAT, but they never submitted. 
So VCAT then interpreted that as meaning the problems weren't so serious and they approved housing to be built on the buffer zone. Then that housing, hundreds of residents were forced to be evacuated as a result of that. I think it was around 2008, their houses were in danger of blowing up as a result of the methane leaking from the tip. So, you know, there are some terrible things and really in that case also, I believe the EPA didn't fully do its job either. So where to from here? The residents are preparing a response to the um, assumptions made by the EPA. This application will go before the Urban Planning Committee of Moreland at the end of July, I think it's the 26th of July. So residents will certainly be focusing on that Urban Planning Committee. I imagine this will end up in VCAT because if the council does the right thing and rejects the application, the developer will probably take it to VCAT. If the council does the wrong thing and approves this application, the residents will absolutely take this to VCAT. But also residents are going to propose some questions for Colin Hartland to ask in Parliament around these legacy sites because what we would like to see is the the state government put together a fund for remediation of these legacy, toxic legacy sites to, you know, start to deal properly with these sites and to also list all of these sites in some sort of clear way. So I think that's uh, going to be very important because the residents want a long-term solution that's good for the community. Hopefully that can be a model for other sites. Are you a lone voice on the council? I'm the only one who's clearly backing the residents. There are some other councillors who are asking some questions, but, yeah, I wouldn't say there's any other councillors who are as sceptical of the information provided by the EPA to councillors as, as I am. I can see lots of holes in what the EPA is has put forward to councillors and I wouldn't say that anyone else is really in the residence corner like that. There are some, you know, some of the other councillors, like some of the Greens councillors are sort of following this, asking some questions, but they certainly haven't, like, taken up the cause. Don't want to rock the boat? I don't know. I mean, they did vote. The Greens councillors and the ALP left councillor did vote for my motion for an independent environmental audit in April. So it was a six to five majority at that time. But I do seriously worry that the EPA is bluffing the council. So it's certainly not an automatic thing that there'll be serious questions asked about the toxicity of the site and the adequacy of testing, etc. And there's lots of people out in that area who determined this one is not going to go away. That's Sue Bolton, who's a member of Social Alliance and a councillor with the City of Moreland. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am on the old dial, 3CR on digital, 3cr.org.au if you'd like to stream the program or else podcast the program to listen to later, that's 3cr.org.au. It's coming up to 5.30. In a few moments, we'll be here. Professor Emeritus 
James Petrus. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Smith Street Dreaming has become one of the area's most anticipated street festivals, featuring Pigeon Jarrah Man, Frank Yammer, Soul Diva Emma Donovan, Hip Hoppers Young Warriors, Indigenous Hip Hop Projects Wurundjeri Dance Group Jindy Warabak, MC Shelley Ware from the Mangrook Footy Show and much more. Smith Street Dreaming on the corner of Smith and Stanley Streets, Collingwood, Saturday the 22nd of July, 1 till 5pm. Smith Street Dreaming. One street, many mobs, one community. This is an alcohol and drug-free event a 3CR supporter. Where You Meant To Be, a film benefit for 3CR Radiothon, put on by the Sewer Show crew. Singer Aidan Moffat and friends travel Scotland, drinking in the roots of old folk tunes, featuring older balladeer Sheila Stewart. Showing upstairs at 3CR at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, on Friday the 30th of June at 7pm sharp. Popcorn supplied. $10, $5 concession. All welcome. Earlier this morning I spoke with Professor Emeritus James Petrus at his home in New York and I began by asking him what he believes is behind the move by Saudi Arabia, backed by the US, to subjugate Qatar into what has been called a client state status. Well, we see very clearly that Trump took the part of uh, Saudi Arabia and its Emirate partners, and it's also uh, acting on behalf of Israel. The key issue here is the Saudis are... very hostile to Iran and are looking in some way or other to prejudice Iran, either through terrorist interventions, as we saw recently, or else through uh, some effort to uh, tighten the boycott of Iran and uh, hopefully with the aid of the United States and Iran to topple the government. These are fantasies more than anything else. And uh, Qatar is uh, being victimized because it refuses to engage in this uh, confrontation with Iran. In fact, it wants to uh, mediate and uh, conciliate uh, with Iran and the uh, Gulf countries. Washington is deeply involved with Saudi Arabia because of the big arms deal and the need that Trump has to create some allies after alienating countries in Asia, Europe, and in uh, Latin America. So I think his uh, embrace of uh, Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia's uh, fear of the electoral processes in Iran may spill over 
and affect the Saudi population and endanger the uh, despotic regime in Saudi Arabia. Iran in in the Middle East is probably one of the most open uh, electoral systems in the in the region, and has a, a very prominent program for higher education for women and particularly in the professions. So Saudi Arabia is uh, is hysterical with Iran, especially since Iran supports some of the uh, independent movements such as in Yemen and in Syria and in uh, Iraq against the uh, terrorist ISIS groups which are much closer to Saudi Arabia. But how does the U.S. square with the fact that they've got a base in Qatar and they're still selling billions of dollars of arms to that country? Well, that's true. Uh, One of the uh, contradictions of uh, Trump is he makes choices that don't seem sensible and reasonable given the uh, involvement of the U.S. in that area. I think uh, there is some dissension in the White House and in the uh, in the Congress, but the Qatar faces a problem, and that is that the Saudis are much closer to Israel. Israel is very influential in shaping U.S. political agendas with countries in the Middle East. And since Qatar has taken up a conciliatory policy with Iran, the U.S. responding to uh, Saudi and Israeli pressure Uh, overlooks its uh, current commitments or past commitments, including the military bases and the military market with uh, Qatar. It's a convoluted policy which has uh, deep contradictions and could adversely affect U.S. influence in the region. Well, what's the future of the U.S. base there? It's very hard for Qatar to oust them in any case. There's probably... uh, several thousand U.S. Uh, fighters there, soldiers. Uh, there's certainly uh, warplanes uh, war and uh, ships. So Qatar is not about in a position to uh, tell them to leave and to put pressure on them. So that's why Washington can uh, try to push them around. But they're not pushing them too far. They're going along with the sanctions but Qatar has uh, trade relations with Iran and already shows uh, that it will move on from its previous relationships in the Gulf. At least it's some signs that it's uh, conciliating or trying to negotiate with the other countries, the Emirates and uh, Saudi Arabia, though they haven't gotten very far in that direction. What do the sanctions involve? They're blocking the shipment of food and uh, other essential consumer goods to uh, Qatar. They're blocking transport, their uh, access to Qatar from sea and uh, air travel. And Qatar has a, a very advanced airline service. So they're squeezing them economically by... Uh, isolating their land routes and uh, their air routes out of Qatar. They talk about the boycott of Qatar, but they don't talk about what Saudi Arabia is doing to the people of Yemen, a much more serious boycott. It's 
caught in the attention of uh, several international agencies now that talk about the uh, famine, disease, uh, hunger, the killings. Uh, I think there is outside of uh, Washington circles, there's general recognition that Saudi Arabia is engaged in, in, uh, in the equivalent of a genocidal policies. The trouble is the European Union is very much uh, involved, especially England, France, uh, Germany, in selling arms to Saudi Arabia. They're not likely and have not expressed any opposition to the mass killings and uh, intervention there. So it's mainly uh, countries like uh, Iran, Syria, and perhaps uh, sections in Iraq that are sympathetic to Yemen. And, of course, uh, Russia is also not exactly friendly, but they, they also have deals with the Saudis. The Russians have not been very outspoken on the, uh, on the mass murdering in Yemen. Mainly the United Nations uh, humanitarian organizations have spoken most for forcefully on the crimes of Saudi Arabia. And why are those crimes being committed against Yemen? What's in it for Saudi Arabia? Why is Saudi Arabia punishing Yemen? I think, again, it's a fear of a democratic and independent country. It's uh, partly their opposition to uh, the Shia majority in Yemen. It's partly uh, that Yemen would uh, engage in... Uh, diverse relationships in the region, and above all, the Saudi uh, dictatorship is very fearful of any democratization in Yemen. Again, we're dealing with a very despotic regime in uh, Saudi Arabia, and any forms of democratic governance, independent governance, is seen as a threat to this uh, despotic regime. I think they have uh, uh, been intervening in Yemen for many years as they intervene in other countries fomenting terrorism. If you look at the Middle East in Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, any place where there are extreme terrorist Islamic groups, Saudi is behind it. Can you explain in a short time why the split between Sunnis and Shia has got to the stage it has now? This is a historical legacy of colonialism that begins uh, the subdivision of regions by religious uh, affiliations. This has been exploited by the U.S. when it invaded Iraq and uh, fomented the uh, Sunnis against these uh, Shia and then the Shia against the Sunnis. Uh, I think this has been a traditional uh, imperial policy of divide and conquer. When and if the uh, imperial powers did not intervene, there was a compatibility. Saddam Hussein, for example, uh, allowed a great deal of uh, intermingling between the Shia and the Sunnis. And I, I think uh, under previous secular regimes, that was the case. The exploitation of these differences in whatever part of the world has always been 
a tactic to weaken the uh, national unity of the country and the uh, domestic governance. Back to the U.S., is Trump officially under investigation? And if he is, what does it mean? I think that whether they call it investigation or not, there's been a concerted effort by the Democratic Party to uh, uh, undermine the government in the first place uh, and secondly to overthrow the government. I I think they're moving in that direction. I think they uh, have the capacity because the Central Intelligence Agency, the federal police and the security agencies are infiltrated and, and controlled by people that were uh, appointed by Obama, Clinton, and uh, perhaps even uh, Bush. Uh, and these people have no loyalty to the government. Uh, they've been uh, involved in uh, accusing him of, uh, of being a uh, traitor to Russia, working with Russia to cook the election. There's been absolutely no concrete evidence, but the uh, procedure goes on. And since that has been ineffective. Now they're accusing him of obstructing the process. Since the original uh, charges of uh, treasonous behavior with Russia hasn't gone down well, and it's finally virtually discredited, they've gone on to other issues having to do with his son-in-law, his business uh, relations, etc. And, of course, the... uh, Similar activities, uh, the uh, Clinton Foundation, which was violating all the uh, tax laws, uh, the Obama administration, which was involved in uh, criminal behavior, uh, particularly assassination of American citizens abroad, uh, none of that was uh, investigated. It's a political process that's going on. It's a fight between oligarchs, the uh, new oligarchs coming in with Trump, which are more free marketeers, and uh, the uh, existing state apparatus controlled essentially by the Democrats for their own alliances and their own ties with sectors of the capitalist class. This is not a struggle between Democrats and and, uh, authoritarians. There's clearly authoritarianism on both sides, except that the uh, uh, democratic authoritarians uh, are very dangerous because of their uh, hostility to any kind of negotiations with Russia and Iran and the Middle East. They're more militaristic, and they forced uh, Trump to take that direction, his original policy of trying to lessen U.S. military intervention, reconciliation with Russia. That's gone out the window as he's uh, backed off and tried to out-militarize his opponents. How destabilizing is this battle between the oligarchs for the the country as a whole? Well, it's created a paralysis in legislation. Congress can't do anything the media can't talk about anything except this uh, this vendetta against Trump. So there is, it's actually paralyzed the political process 
And that might not be a bad thing, given the fact that the legislature and the president are engaged in the very uh, reactionary policy. It may be a good thing that there's chaos and confusion in Washington, because the uh, other uh, option is to have them work together to widen the gap between the classes and increase in, in U.S. bellicosity around the world. What's your opinion on his move on Cuba? It's a step backward from the feeble steps that Obama took. He's going to make it a little more difficult for people to travel and engage in, in business activities. But from my reading, it's, uh, it's just something which he's asked the U.S. to pursue, and that is not going to be implemented right away. The entire business community is, is uh, against the, uh, the hindrances and regulations. Uh, and let's face it, the uh, backing that Trump got was in, uh, in old Miami, what they call uh, old Havana, and, and that is mainly the older generations of Cubans, and it certainly doesn't have the support of U.S. public opinion, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the major airlines. It's hard to see if, if, if these new regulations will actually be implemented. So there's a lot of bark here, but it's not clear that there will be any uh, significant bite in it. And they talk about the impact on tourism, but surely... The tourism, the main tourism to Cuba over the last years has been from countries like Canada. Canada has always had trade and tourist relations with Cuba. Uh, I don't see that Trump's uh, pronouncements, whatever they are, because as I mentioned, uh, they're pronouncements to a very limited audience. And as I read it, his uh, economic advisors, and uh, particularly in the State Department, are not very enthusiastic. Certainly Canada will not be adversely affected by Trump. In Europe, there's a new president in France, Emmanuel Macron, characterised as a defeat of fascism and the triumphs of the French people. You disagree? Uh, I think it's a farce. Uh, Macron is violently anti-Labour. He wants to turn back the clock 50 years and uh, labour laws that protect employment, uh, that protect civil servants, that uh, support uh, uh, hourly wages in an in equitable way. He, he got elected with 20% of the electorate. Essentially, 58% of the electorate turned their back on him. The, of that, the 42 or 43% that voted, uh, probably less than half voted for Macron's candidate. So uh, I think he's an illegitimate president who's going to face the 58% of the abstentionist when he tries to implement his utterly, utterly reactionary agenda. And uh, this is uh, the hope of the Financial Times and the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post, all the rapidly uh, anti-labor 
media in the United States and, and in Great Britain are very enthusiastic, but uh, they must uh, uh, unconsciously or uh, deceptively know that Macron did not have an overwhelming victory. He won the elections because of the abstention. And uh, the fact that he has 40% women in parliament now tells us nothing. We know some of the most reactionary uh, rulers and Congress people have women. What's, cl what's important is not women per se, but the, the class politics, the imperialist politics, uh, anti-imperialist politics of women. And that, that, to me, is the cutting edge of the 58% of the electorate that did not vote for uh, Macron. I'm sure more than half of those were women. So you, you can't say that the uh, election of women in the uh, Macron assembly, a majority, uh, is going to be anything but a... Uh, uh, bringing in of new sectors of population to support utterly reactionary politics. And the reason why people abstained from voting? I think, first of all, they didn't get uh, a feeling that the uh, other candidates and parties were in a position to organize a program of resistance. And more important, in the run-up for the elections, uh, the left... The nationalists and others were not engaged in class struggle to give them a sense of uh, class identity to go and vote. There's a strong correlation between the higher the class str struggle participation, the more likely people will vote for the left or for the uh, populace. And the fact that there was virtually none of that and uh, the media played a big role. The Hollande Social Democrats played a big role in alienating so many people, not just in the first round, but the uh, second round, but in the first round of the election. People will react once their economic interests are directly affected. I'm, I'm absolutely certain that once Macron tries to implement his policies, uh, the barricades and the street fighting will begin. And in Britain, Theresa May is clinging on by her fingernails? I think the latest uh, blow and what's going to ha happen is after this tower burned with the total neglect of the regulators and the conservative administrations, the tardiness of doing anything for the victims... The fact that the ties between the real estate elites and the conservative party is certainly going to be a dent. This is like the Katrina breakup of uh, the Bush administration. This, this is a certainly a negative impact. And I think the uh, incapacity to formulate a coherent strategy that will benefit the British people from Brexit is creating a great deal of hostility to the government. England is in the throes of a breakup. There's no question now in Wales, in Scotland, uh, in Northern Ireland, there is a great deal of dissension. It's the breakup not only of the European Union with England departing, but it is the breakup of 
United Kingdom. It's a very disunited kingdom at this point. Finally, James, the U.S. role today in Syria and Iraq. Very clear. The U.S. is extremely provocative and, and responding in a very dangerous way. The shooting down of the Syrian plane Uh, Russia has put them on notice that from now on, U.S. planes that flow over Russian territory will be shot down. We're getting to a point where there might be a real nuclear power confrontation here. The U.S. has lost ground. The terrorist backers uh, that they had are in retreat. The Kurds uh, that Washington has been... uh, mentoring and financing and supporting are provoking the Turks uh, who are fearful of a cross-border alliance between northern Syria and the Kurdish districts of uh, Turkey. That's another area of conflict. Iran is becoming more involved in southern Syria against the U.S.-backed terrorists. Uh, I think Washington is certainly losing ground its terrorists are on the run. And if Europe wakes up, they'll realize that all the bombings going on in Europe are directly related to U.S. stimulating terrorism in Syria. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn made it very clear that the bombings at home are directly resulting from our bombings overseas. And that was Professor Emeritus James Petrus speaking to him speaking to me from his home in New York, where it was quite hot. Very different to what it here in Melbourne today. That's all I have for the program today. Dunbar Law will be here in a couple of minutes' time. Until then, a song from Archie Roach. And I'll be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock. Bye for now.